third of the Romans chapter 8 at verse 31. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? May the same Spirit who inspired these glorious words also inspire our hearts in the understanding of them. In a congregation like this on a Sunday morning, here and there are souls with fears in their hearts, fears of the future, fears of illness, Fears of the lack of support. All kinds of fears. I cannot get behind your faces, row after row, to know all of those things that vex you today. One of the things you're wrestling with is, how does God relate to these fears? In what sense does he have a part to play in overcoming them? Or is it all up to me? This letter to the Romans was written partly to answer that question because the Roman Christians were enduring the same sorts of pressures of persecution, threats and insecurities. They hardly knew from one day to the next what their lot would be. And so Paul, among other purposes, writes this great reassuring word of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Would you agree with me that this is one of the most reassuring and powerful assurances of God's care to be found anywhere in Holy Scripture? I think it is. When Bonar was writing about this great verse, he said, It silences within me the rising fear, and it causes all hard thoughts to disappear. Oh, dear friend, may it be so for you also, servant of Christ, to silence every rising fear and make every hard thought disappear. Now we want to ask some questions of this verse this morning. What is behind it? He who did not spare his own son. 
Well, you don't start there. There's something on which that rests, a kind of premise that you have to build on. Why did God not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? It's not said here. And the reason is that God has already elucidated that clearly in the rest of the Bible. What has he said? In the rest of the word of God, he's told us of two kinds of love. There is a benevolent love described in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is God's general love. And so the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And marriage is given freely whether a person is a believer or not. The sun shines on the crops of the righteous man and the unrighteous. Human evil is restrained so that human life and society can go on. This is the general, the benevolent love of God for all his creatures. But inside that, there is a complacent or special love of God. That word complacent has been spoiled to mean smug and self-satisfied, but it has it always meant that, and in its best sense, it means delighting in, finding pleasure in something else. A complacent love, therefore, is God delighting in a certain group of his people. He has a general love for all men, but this complacent love for his own. And this is described also in Scripture. For example, Samuel speaks of it in 1 Samuel chapter 12, where he says that the Lord has not forsaken you because he has called you by his name. David writes of it in Psalm 47. He said, the Lord has given us an inheritance. He has chosen us in Jacob, whom he loved. You see? He's singling out some whom he loved. Or Jeremiah speaks about it when he says in 31.3, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I will continue my faithfulness toward you. Could we liken it to a young man that has a great many Christian women who are his acquaintances? And there's a sense in which he loves them all as sisters in Christ. But then he sets his particular love on one of them. And he draws her, or hopes to, to himself. That's his complacent love. He took a delight in one, though he had love for all. Now, this is the background of verse 32, that God has this complacent love for his people. It has nothing to do with the merit of his people. That's where we so easily go astray. And Samuel again helps us to see that when he said to the people of Israel, the Lord did not set his love upon you and choose you because you were more in number than others, but because he loved you. In other words, the explanation of his choosing is not in you whatsoever, but in God. 
He loved you. That's enough, Samuel says. It is as if to say that God looking upon the people and trusting in his own sovereign power has enough the right sort of divine self-confidence which is holy and just and good so that he sees that he can turn sinners to righteousness and that this group of sinners are an inviting project in which he can display his power and his glory. In fact, it's the very converse of merit. It's almost as if God sets his complacent love on those who will be least likely to seek him on their own, least likely to be his. The misery of their sin, their triviality, their unlikeness to him, their rebellion, their ingratitude, their disobedience, all these things make them particular objects of his complacent love because he wants to display his power in them. Don't let anyone, however, go out and say that one ought to sin grossly in order to become an object of God's saving power. No. But in his own mercy and for his own reasons and for his own glory, he sovereignly and graciously delights in and takes pleasure in his own people. That is the background of verse 32. Why does God not spare his own son? It is because of this love that he has, not for all men, that general love is there, and it accounts for his, his general gifts for them, but for his complacent love. What is the reason that he spares not, but that he loves and delights in and takes great pleasure in these who will be subjects to unfold his glory and his power to the universe. Now, notice how wisely the Spirit has inspired Paul. He doesn't simply say here, now understand these Roman Christians are worried about the same things you are, a job, food for tomorrow, the future, their security, all these things. The same things you're worried about they had. And he doesn't simply say, now look, God loves you, therefore he's going to give you everything. Because that wears thin. It's not enough to have a vague, general statement, God loves you. You see that everywhere. The Bible, instead of giving you vagueness, gives you solid truth. And here it is. God did not spare his own son. That's fact. That's not a vague, general statement. He did not spare his own son. Now, I wonder if we realize and, and revel in this little phrase, his own son. Sometimes friends are apt to think of God's sons as being ourselves and also Christ, and therefore he's very much like us at this point. But this separates him. His own son means that he is infinitely different 
in his relation to the Father than I am. Now you can see this in his life when he said, he said, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He could have simply said, our God and our Father. But he didn't. He wanted to show his disciples that there was a difference in his relation to the Father and his relation to God and in theirs. Because between the Father and the Son, there is the oneness of being. They share the same essence, the same substance, the same power and glory. They are one God. Otherwise, the love of the Father would not be revealed in the sacrifice of the Son. But when the Father spares not his Son, he is really sparing not himself. It is the self-sacrifice of God, the self-denial of God, that is here offered as the incontestable evidence of the love of God for his own elect, the complacent love of God. This great fact is offered as proof of the premise, God loves his own. He spared not his own son. In other words, God was confronted with a choice. God, by his very character, demands justice and righteous holiness. Where his law is offended, there must be payment or he is not God. That must be. So God is confronted with a terrible choice. Either the wrath of his own being, which must be poured out upon iniquity, shall be poured upon the sinners who have committed that iniquity, or it shall be poured upon a sacrifice whom he appoints, a pure and spotless being. And what this passage is telling us is that when God was confronted with this awful dilemma, shall he pour out the torrents of his anger upon the sinners in whom he has taken delight and pleasure, who are complacently his own, or upon his own son, meaning himself, he sides with sinners as over against himself. That is the great fact of this passage. He did not spare his own self, his own son, This is the greatest, most honorable self-denial, the most powerful example of sacrifice ever known to the human heart. He spared not. Now there are no accidents in the wording of Holy Scripture. And these very words are the ones that are used of Abraham who spared not his son in Genesis chapter 22. You remember how that was. Abraham dwelt among pagan neighbors. He saw them taking their children and offering them to pagan gods of fire and burning their own offspring. Abraham wondered, do I love the true God as my 
ungodly neighbors love their false gods. They sacrifice their children, but I do not. And God said, all right, Abraham, take your son, whom you love, your only son, Isaac, and take him to Mount Moriah and offer him there. And immediately, Abraham did not hesitate, but took his son and the fire and the wood, and off they went. But just as he was about to plunge in the dagger, in that awful moment in which his heart must have been utterly wrenched, God stayed his arm and provided in the thicket a ram for an, an offering and said, Abraham, God has provided a lamb for you. Don't sacrifice your son. How wise of God to do more than one thing at a time. He relieved Abraham and all his posterity of that ugly comparison and showed human nature forever after he does not ask that of a man. Yet, he laid the blessed groundwork of the sacrifice of his own son. Because if he was there with his angels to stay the hand of Abraham, and he was, and he did, who would stay the hand of God when the soldiers were ready to pierce that flesh that had done no evil and those feet that were beautiful in the preaching of the gospel? Who stayed the hand of God? No one stayed it. God spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. Not only passively, as if he allowed these cruel and wicked men to do their deed and stood back waiting, no. The word of God tells us that so great was this complacent love he had for his own people that he actively smote his own son. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was not only the act of wicked man, that it was, but it was also and definitely and purposefully the act of a loving father who sided against his son for these, his people in whom he took delight. God spared not his son, but delivered him, gave him up for us all. And the son was no unwilling victim, as if it was only the father's love being demonstrated. But the son said, Therefore doth the father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The son also paid a great price of self-denial. We read that as he went toward the cross, he prayed this way, Now is my soul sorrowful within me, even unto death. And when in the awful depths of the agony of Good Friday, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? He was showing that the father had in that moment abandoned him to be the sin bearer of the world. Not that the, the union between the divine and human natures of Christ was split apart. No, that was permanent and eternal. Christ was deity there. God was with him in nature. But the Father removed the angel's ministry. He removed his fatherly comfort. He took away his indwelling presence. He took away the privilege of prayer and all of the things that supported the Son, and he was left hanging alone. God spared not his own Son, but gave him up for us all. It is not only, therefore, that God so loved the world that he gave, but it is also that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The whole compact of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, joined together in one mighty unity of love, that these on whom God has set his delight may find the redemption from sin and eternal life. This is the great commendation of the love of God that he has done this in history as a solid fact on which we may base a great assurance. Now Paul draws the deduction and so shall we. Will he not also give us all things with him? In other words, if God has done this, then will he not go on providing? Why, that's what Abraham found. And when Abraham came down from the place at Mount Moriah, relieved with his arm around his son, singing as he went, what was his song? Jehovah-Jireh. He even named the place, the Lord will provide. In other words, it was a future kind of a thing. If God provided that ram in the thicket, and he met my needs so beautifully and released my heart from those ugly fears that had bound them, if God provided, will he not provide in the future? Isn't this what Samuel did when he said, raising up the stones, here is Ebenezer, meaning the Lord has helped us this far. If he's gone this far with us, will he not take us farther yet? And that's what Paul is saying. Will he not also give us all things with him? There's a word left out here. You might even, if you're bold enough, write it in your Bible, if it's your Bible, uh, write it there, the beginning of that verse. There's a word left out. It's in the Greek, but it's left out of the English. It's the word surely. S-U-R-E-L-Y, surely. The little Greek word G-E means indeed or surely. And it's right there at the beginning. 
Surely he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things? In other words, there's another certainty about it in the Greek language. A complete confidence. Why? Because he did the painful. Shall he not do the pleasant? Think of the bitterness of Christ being thrust out from God to bear our sin, the pain. God spared not his son. He went through the pain. Everything after that is pure pleasure. For God to give us in a daily way the things we need, to meet our needs for grace and mercy all along the way. Why, that is for God a beautiful, joyful, ungrudging, glad, generous experience. If he did the hard thing, will he not do the easy one? And it says here that all these things are given with him. The picture being that along with the gift of the Savior comes a kind of promise of every other gift. One Puritan wrote this way when he read this verse. He said, Having Christ, we have all. And I agree with him, don't you? That every gift, whether great or small, whether in this life or in the next, is comprised with the gift of Christ and comes along with him, packaged with him, if you will, so that having Christ, we have all. That means, friend, that you have some unexamined gifts, some unopened gifts. There are dimensions of the gift of Christ to you that you haven't yet fathomed. In fact, you may be slighting them with a casual disregard instead of prizing all you have in Christ. The greater he gave, will he not give the lesser? If he gave his own son the most infinitely precious that any person could ever possess, will he not give you patience, time, forgiveness, hope, strength, courage? He will. He does. All things, it says, that isn't limited simply to spiritual blessings. That means also the hard realities of life, physical things, whatever is needed, not necessarily whatever is wanted, but whatever is needed to take us to that ultimate and final goal, which is our destiny in Christ. All things that are needful for you, having paid the immensely infinite price of his own son's blood, will he then withhold some trifle from your life? No, 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 a thousand times no. And if he redeemed us as a community, and he did, did he not also redeem us particularly? individually? And if he redeemed you particularly with your name on his tongue and in his heart, written on his hands, will he abandon you? No. He'll meet 
your need, particularly. You're looking for a job. You're longing for work. The God who employed himself for your eternal benefit will not see your prayers go void. Go out as Ruth, as a gleaner, and watch how God will drop handfuls on purpose. You're asking for your health. It's gone from you for a time. Does the God who cares about your eternal well-being disregard your temporal soundness and strength? No. He will give you all your need for his plan. You're concerned about your sanity, the strength of your mind. Can it stand the stresses? The God who gave his own son, freely delivering him up, will give you the spirit of a sound mind. You're concerned about heaven. Will I be brought at last to eternal life? Am I numbered among God's people? Have I done what is required to be there? God, who spared not his own son, but gave him up for you, only asks you to receive his gift, to embrace him in repentance and faith. If he gave you his own beloved son, will he not also give you the assurance of heaven, ask for it. Oh, what a verse. What a reality. I cannot comprehend it. Surely he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? In heaven, we'll be able to see how condescending and compassionate this verse is. Then eternity will disclose how God has provided for his own. And we will laugh at ourselves that ever a fear rose in our hearts. Why were we afraid, we will say, when we see this whole tapestry from the other side? Why, God, having done the one, why didn't we know he would do the other? How could we have been so stupid? Friend, I don't ask you to comprehend. I ask you to put into practice, to implement this great truth. With every silent fear rising in your heart, with every hard thought that comes along, meet it with the reality of what God has done in Christ. Challenge the adversary. Hurl into his face this truth. The God who gave his son for me will surely give me strength to overcome your temptation, and I shall be more than conqueror. Make that your commitment. Let's work this verse out in our daily life, and we'll be stronger for it. Let us O oh, blessed and gracious God, how can we, on whom your love has been placed, and who have tasted the delight of your spirit, how can we ever repay such love? 
What could we do, Lord, except to return love to you? And so we do. We give our love, for we are yours. We bless your name. Imprint right on our hearts this marvelous truth. The Lord will provide. He who gave his own son will freely with him give us all things. I'm thinking now of that last stanza of the great hymn, When I Survey. Going to ask us just to sing it a cappella, just to, to be right there in your place. Remember.